0: It's Friday, November 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Florida citrus industry is in danger because of a disease that affects tree roots and prevents raw green fruit from ripening. The disease is called Huang Long Bing, which means yellow dragon sickness. The problem is so bad that 90% of the state's groves are infected by the disease and the industry might only survive 10 to 15 more years. Daryl Fears, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for the most feared citrus disease in the world. Next, the stories that emerge from the first round of public impeachment hearings vary dramatically depending on where you get your news. Check out conservative media and the hearing was a dud. Check out other media and the story was about new details of a call between Trump and Gordon Sondland. Neil Rothschild, reporter at Axios, joins us for impeachment's dueling echo chambers. Finally, add one more to the list. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick has declared that he is running for president. Jumping into the already crowded field of Democratic candidates and missing several debates already, he will face an uphill battle to make his case for the nomination. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter for Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: The symptoms of long long being are irregularly shaped fruit, off color fruit, bitter taste, a uh, reduction in yield, and finally, the long long being will kill the citrus tree. Older trees take longer to die, younger trees die relatively quickly. Joining us
0: now is Daryl Fears, reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. It's
1: a pleasure to be here.
0: We're going to be talking about the most feared citrus disease in the world, and right now it is devastating the Florida citrus industry. There's about 90 percent of all of the state's groves are infected by this one bacteria, and it is just causing a whole mess of problems. Daryl, tell us a little bit about this.
1: Well, this started in 2005. At least it was first detected in 2005. And the name is called Wang Langbing. It's the Chinese name meaning yellow dragon disease, I believe, and it made its way to Florida through tree clippings. This disease, this bacteria, is spread through a psyllid, a small insect that feeds on the leaves of these trees, and when it feeds on these trees, it injects this bacteria into trees, and that goes to their root systems and begin destroying the root systems, and the trees cannot get nutrients, and so it's a horrible problem.
0: And what it causes is this thing that, a lot of people might have heard this before, citrus greening. So since the fruit itself can't get the nutrients from the roots, the fruit either never ripens fully and it stays green. Or what happens is that the tree might drop the fruit early before they have a chance to pick it. And why that's a particularly a bad problem is that in Florida, under Florida law, citrus that falls from a tree to the ground cannot be sold. So that's just a huge problem right there as well.
1: That's all very correct. For trees, if they can't get the nutrients they need, then the tree itself will hoard the water and whatever it grabs from the earth. And whatever fruit is relying on those nutrients, the tree will just let it go. One of the scientists explained that that's sort of the tree saying, not saying that the tree is thinking, but trying to relate that to us, is the tree saying, hey, the fruit can grow again next year when I'm stronger.
0: And the alarms are sounding now. I mean, this is a $9 billion citrus industry in Florida there. It's their second biggest industry behind tourism. And they're creating all of these things that people are calling ghost groves. Basically, the trees are dying out. They're not producing the fruit anymore. And it's just becoming a huge issue. You got a chance to travel to one of these groves, CB's Citrus. Tell us about your experience there
1: bees like a lot of these groves, the owners are looking at the damage to the trees and seeing that they really can't go forward with this damage. More than a quarter of their grove is gone because of this disease. Some trees are dead, some trees are dying, some trees are sick and often what happens is with citrus greening and that means that everyone knows that when oranges are raw they're green. So if they don't ripen to orange, then no one's going to buy them. And then if they are dropped from the tree, as you said, they can't be sold. And the effect of this is that farmers have no revenue or they have very little revenue or they just can't make it up. And so they have to consider taking a loss. And this loss is year after year after year. The farmers rely on these oranges to sell to major companies like Florida Natural that we all know, Tropicana and Minute Maid, and they just can't sell this produce. And so some farmers have had to abandon their farms and that results in what you talked about, these ghost groves full of dead trees, these petrified forests where the psyllids are feeding on trees and then flying to the farm across the street to feed on those trees.
0: The time is ticking. I I mean, from some of the people that have been looking into this and researching it, they say that the citrus industry in Florida could be out of business within 10 to 15 years. That's still a bit of time, but it's so fast when you have to basically wait every year for the new harvest to come out. So, what are some of these other solutions that they're looking into?
1: They're trying to basically create a new orange, a new tangerine. They're trying to create new rootstocks for these trees, so that these trees and continue to thrive so that they can produce oranges. They're also trying to make oranges in laboratories there genetically and these aren't the type of Frankenstein genetic engineering of oranges, right. these are natural genetic changes to oranges to make them sweeter. And so what they do is they take a rootstock that is more resistant, that survived this bacteria. And from that, they graft it onto another tree so that they can develop an entire root system that is resistant to the disease. And in addition to that, they're taking oranges that are naturally sweeter and also developing roots from those. And so what you get is a more disease tolerant tree that produces a sweeter orange or a sweeter tangerine.
0: Right now, two of the most popular orange varieties are the Hamlin and the Valencia. And everybody knows the Valencia orange, but soon we could have different oranges that kind of replace those that were, as you mentioned, those roots would be more tolerant to this type of disease. And hopefully we'll get the same sweetness and all of that, the same production out of those. It's such a problem. And obviously for the big people like Tropicana and Minute Maid and the growers that they grow with, they Might have huge, huge acreage dedicated to this. It's more of a problem for smaller producers where some people have proposed the unthinkable to them, take out all your trees and start all over. For them, it puts them in a bind to really compete there.
1: Yes. They're telling some to take out all their trees and start over. They're telling others to just plant more trees so that they can get more oranges from their growth. Even when some die, at least they'll have more orange trees to rely on. And so they're planting more trees on more acres and is creating this bunch of trees. And some farmers have had a glut of oranges, so they have more oranges than they can sell. And some farmers just have catastrophic loss. And so right now, Florida is a big mixed bag, but as you can see from the story, a number of farmers have left the places that produce oranges that are edible, that people buy as a whole fruit have dropped. And the amount of juice that Florida oranges produce has dropped. And so. Florida's citrus industry is very much in flux right now.
0: Daryl Fears, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you. I haven't watched. I haven't watched for one minute because I've been with the president, which is much more important as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this is a sham. It was a uh, situation that was caused By people that shouldn't have allowed it to happen. I want to find out who is the whistleblower. Joining
0: us now is Neil Rothschild, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Neil. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. We are into the public phase of the impeachment inquiry and the hearings that we're watching. How people are going to consume this is going to be largely based off of where they're going to get their news depending on what channel you watch for the impeachment hearings and what you're hearing and the news sources that you go to and the social media that you follow is really going to frame what kind of story you're getting out of these impeachment hearings. And it's going to be like that through the entire process. You know, if it progresses onto the Senate, it's going to be the same thing. Whatever you're going to hear from the sources that you're visiting is really going to paint the picture in your head. Neil, tell us a little bit about what we saw after the first day of hearings.
2: Depending on what news channel or what news publications that you're reading after the impeachment hearing, you're going to get a very different narrative. If you were looking at websites on the right, like Breitbart or Town Hall, you see lines like, it looks like the star witnesses in Trump Ukraine impeachment effort just torched the Democrats narrative or Democrat dud. Meanwhile, if you look on the left, for example, the HuffPost banner read, Taylor bombshell damning Trump call. So there are very few shared narratives for how things turn out. What we have to work with is what played out over about eight hours of television. (laughs) But what you want to take out of that or how you want to run with certain lines, it is kind of the Wild West for how each side can spin that series of events.
0: A lot of this stuff happens after the fact through analysis and articles that are written. Even what's happening live can get a spin on it. And, you know, just talking about Fox News, when Ambassador Taylor was up there, instead of maybe putting in the Chirons something about his service to the country, you know, he's a career diplomat, things like that. They put different quotes from the president. So they put, President dismissed Taylor as a never-Trumper. White House called Taylor's testimony triple hearsay. So those are the things that are framing it even during live testimony. And that's really just going to be commonplace for everything throughout the entire process.
2: In order to get a filter that truly has no political spin, you'll have to watch C-SPAN. There are subtle differences in messaging, ways to frame the witnesses that will either Add to their credibility if you are on the left or detract from their credibility on the right. But almost anything you could say about them tends to steer one way or another for painting how you'll see them as a witness.
0: We do it to ourselves. If we're a fan of the president, we're going to go to Fox News probably. If you're opposed to the president, you're more likely to go to MSNBC or CNN. And I'm just naming the three major cable networks. But beyond that, between the websites and the social media, you're going to do that to yourself really and I guess there was a poll done recently by Political Morning Consult where people said there was little chance they're going to change their minds about this whole thing already.
2: We have the central facts in the story. The initial phone call, the transcript came out. There was the initial testimony by Taylor and Kent and many other top diplomats that came out and Each side is going to get set in their ways. Even Lindsey Graham himself said that kind of going weeks back, if there's evidence outside of the initial phone call of a quid pro quo, I would have to take a look at that. And even now we saw with the testimony of Taylor and Kent that there is more evidence, but it's not going to sway how he feels in impeachment, just as whatever is said by the witnesses, the left will also take to mean as a sign of further wrongdoing.
0: Right now, the main arguments from the GOP basically saying that the military aid was eventually released to Ukraine, so that's not a problem, and that there was no investigation that ever occurred of the Bidens or Burisma. So whatever you're arguing didn't happen, so there's no there there. And on the Democratic side, the new revelation was that Bill Taylor, one of his staff members, had witnessed a phone call between the president and Gordon Sondland where President Trump was asking about the investigations, inquiring about that. And now the AP is reporting that there was a second U.S. official that heard that Trump call with Sondland. So as the night played out after that first-round of testimony, people opposed to the president definitely were figuring heavy on that new revelation. And on the other side, they were kind of disparaging the entire process altogether, focusing on Representative Jim Jordan, kind of playing on Gordon Sondland's clear understanding of the quid pro quo, casting doubt and all that. And I mean, that's just all you were getting all night, depending on where you went to go get your news from.
2: Contributing to that is the fact that there is no rule book for what is an impeachable offense. So, you know, if you're a Democrat and you see this as terrible behavior that is unbecoming of the president. Republicans might even agree that it's bad behavior. They just might not agree that it results in an impeachable offense. So then you end up having Republicans have a a higher standard of wrongdoing where it kind of comes down to, was it an illegal act? Did Trump himself direct this to happen? So you have a lot of disagreement to begin with, but then everything gets thrown out the window when you consider, is it impeachable? Because... If you have 435 members of the House with 435 different standards for what's impeachable and same for the Senate, no one's going to be coming on the same terms under that.
0: Neil Rothschild, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me on. This time is about the character of the country. This time is about whether the day after the election, America will keep her promises. This time is about more than removing an unpopular and divisive leader, as important
1: as that is, but about delivering instead for you. Joining
0: us now is Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me. We have a late entry into the Democratic field and the race for the nomination for 2020 Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick has made his presidential campaign official on Thursday. He's subtly knocking some of the other rivals who are running on either nostalgia or taking a our way or no way approach to governance. Zach, tell us a little bit about Deval Patrick getting into the race.
3: So Volpatrick Patrick was the former governor of Massachusetts. He's been out of elected office for a few years now, and he's trying to make this late entrance right now at this point, kind of unclear what his path would be. He's been out of really the public eye for a while. He kind of mulled the presidential run at the beginning of the year before passing. And now he's trying to make that play for unity is what he's trying to go for. You know, he's trying to inherit that Obama-esque call for unity and that Obama-esque call to a higher power, basically. And that if he wants to clear a path, that's what he's looking for.
0: He's got a difficult road ahead of him, The campaign has been going on for some time now. We've already had debates going on. And early on in any campaign, it's all about name recognition. I have to imagine that his name recognition is very low outside of Massachusetts.
3: I think difficult, it might be an understatement for how tough his path is. He's coming into this race late. He has already missed the first five debates. He's probably not going to make the sixth debate in December, which is actually hosted by Politico. Probably won't be there because he won't hit the polling threshold hit by the DNC, presumably he will have trouble fundraising. He has to get a foothold in the early states, in New Hampshire especially. So difficult is probably an understatement. Launching a campaign is incredibly hard late. Another person who's thinking about doing this, Michael Bloomberg, has all the resources he could possibly imagine at his disposal. He is a billionaire many, many, many times over. He could basically fund whatever he wants to do. That's not the case with Deval Patrick. He needs to raise money the old-fashioned way, and even if he had a bunch of big donors backing him, and that remains to be seen if that's true or not, it won't match what a self funder could do on a short time period.
0: You mentioned Michael Bloomberg, even Hillary Clinton has said in a BBC interview recently that she's under enormous pressure for many, 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 many people to think about getting in the race. I feel like a lot of people have already kind of decided who they want to be their nominee. We have a long process to go on that, but people have already attached themselves to candidates.
3: There's a lot of hand-wringing among Democratic donors and Democratic party officials or officials broadly people who work in politics on a regular basis that maybe the field just isn't cutting it, but that's not really what voters feel. Many voters have not firmly landed on a choice yet up to as many 60 70 percent of voters still even if they have a favorite candidate not saying they're locked in yet but that doesn't mean they want more people to get into the race if anything most voters say they want people to exit the race the real question is what lane does the Bullpatrick fill lanes aren't perfect there's no pure lane that you know oh i can get these voters and win but what questions does he answer that somebody already in the field doesn't basically
0: it seems like he's going to try to stake out the more moderate position or try to unite the progressives and the more moderates, I guess you could say. He has said that he does not necessarily support a Medicare for all plan, but he is for a public option. What else do we know about any type of policy stances that he's taken so far?
3: He's taken very few policy stances. He said a wealth tax was directionally the right idea, but he wasn't sure about it in practice. So he said, at least, I don't think he'd endorse a full on wealth tax with Joseph Warren but maybe something that goes after more high earners through reforming a tax system in another way. But other than that, he hasn't really taken much of a stance. His launch video basically was like, I am a unifier. I can speak to America's better angels. And that's kind of what he's going for right now. I guess if you would have to put him into a policy bucket, he'd probably be in the Buddha, Judge Biden, Harris bucket, the more moderate members of the party. He's no Elizabeth Warren, who is a close ally of his. Because they're both in Massachusetts, but he's no Elizabeth Warren. He's no Bernie Sanders
0: maybe if he would have got in the race a lot earlier, he could have been a contender. You know, As you mentioned, he's kind of always been around politics. He served as the assistant attorney general for civil rights in Bill Clinton's administration. He was an executive at Texaco and Coca-Cola. He was a managing director for Bain Capital. So he's always been around there. But I think it was last December or something, he said, I'm not going to get into it because of the cruelty that this would put on my family, this election process. And now at the last second, he's trying to get in there with just a tough, tough uphill battle to succeed there. Who, if any, would this affect the most in the current race? His jumping in, who would it be the most blow to?
3: If he was to get in and if he can find a foothold, which is a big if at this point, you want to look at the moderates. Can he pick off black support from Joe Biden if he does catch on? Can he occupy the same space that Pete Buttigieg does, that more moderate aspirational Democrat um, candidates like that. He's not really going to take up the same lane as Elizabeth Warren. It's not like it's going to be a big battle for the future of Massachusetts. Massachusetts is probably not a particularly important Democratic primary state. So it's not like they're fighting for ground there. He's not a Bernie Sanders. He's not even, you know, an Andrew Yang, a disaffected voter. The people who typically support Andrew Yang are the more disaffected voters. So he's not going for that area either. If he can pick off some voters in the Biden judge area.
0: Zach Montalaro campaign reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. was your daily dive.